Paleo Runner Podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click on Ratings and Reviews. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product that I've been using over the past few weeks called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that utilizes fats, proteins, and carbohydrates as a fuel source. Unlike other sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream and gives you energy throughout your workout. It won't give you a blood sugar spike like other sports drinks, which means that you can continue to utilize fats throughout your workout. I do a lot of time trials during my training, and since I've been using 3Fuel, I've run some of my fastest times this year in the 10K and 10 Mile. I took 45 seconds off from my previous workout for both the 10K and 10 Mile and brought my times down to 59 minutes and 36 minutes. Another thing about 3Fuel is that it doesn't cause GI distress like other sports drinks tend to do. If you'd like to try it out, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. That's 3, the letter F, Olson, O-L-S-O-N. You can go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page to get the coupon code. If you're listening on the podcast app for iPhone, click on the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Professor Daniel Lieberman from Harvard University. Professor Lieberman has proposed a hypothesis that says humans have uniquely evolved as distance runners. His work was featured in Chris McDougall's best-selling book, Born to Run. Professor Lieberman, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. So you came up with this idea that humans have evolved to run. What kind of evidence do you have in support of this claim? Well, um, I should uh, say that I'm not the first person to have this thought. Um, so uh, let's rewind the clock a bit. Um, so people have been working on the evolution of human locomotion for years, for, 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 for almost a century. And most of the work has been on, on walking, because, of course, when you look out the window, most of the time you see people walking. But there's been a little bit of interest in running. And uh, the first paper, to my knowledge, that suggested that humans, um, that running played an important role in human evolution was published in 1984 by a guy named Dave Carrier at the University of Utah. And then um, um, Dave Carrier's advisor actually was a guy named um, um, Dennis Bramble, who was also at Utah. And Bramble and I uh, became friends. Um, and uh, so we started talking about the uh, evolution of human running um, starting in around 1990-something, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and Bramble was very convinced by the idea, and I got more and more excited by it. Um, and we published a paper in Nature, uh, the, the, the scientific journal Nature, in 2004, which was entitled Born to Run. And uh, that was uh, on the cover of Nature was a big hit. And uh, it was that that brought Chris McDougall to my lab. Um, it came about a year later in about 2005. Um, and... Um, that's when he got interested in our work, but uh, to so, so and actually that's that's when he got interested in in, in running, um, in the evolution of running and in barefoot running because we were at that point starting studying barefoot running as well. So born to run actually started with um, 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 uh, Dave Carrier and then uh, Bramble and Lieberman two thousand and four, and then since then it's been an explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that 2004 paper that, that uh, Dennis Bramble and I wrote uh, outlined um, in detail the evidence that humans uh, have uh, gone through selection to run. And uh, literally, there's data from our heads to our toes. Um, we have all kinds of features in our bodies that are novel, that other cr- primates don't have, That uh, some of which are convergent with other cursorial mammals. Cursorial means uh, an animal that's evolved or adapted for running. And they include, for example, short toes, 
the arch in our feet, uh, long Achilles tendon, uh, large gluteus maximus, uh, the semicircular canals in your inner ear. There's a long, long list of features that um, improve human performance in running that are not present in our close relatives and ancestors. Uh, so that means that they evolved de novo in humans. And furthermore, a lot most these features don't uh, improve your ability to walk, <coughs> so they only really help you run. So they must be, by uh, biological definition, adaptations for running. The other set of evidence that, that we're really good at running is our performance capability. So we're not very good at sprinting. The world's fastest sprinters can go um, about 23 miles per hour or 10.4 meters a second. And, you know, I can see your dog uh, in the Skype thing there, but your dog can probably run twice as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Um for about four minutes, whereas Usain Bolt can run at 10.4 meters a second for about 10 seconds. Um, but what we're really good at is long-distance running. We're able to run at speeds that are quite remarkable, that, that make animals have to, quite full-size horses have to gallop. And we can run at those dis- distances and those speeds uh, for very long distances um, and actually beat horses in marathons. So so the evidence that we're evolved to run is both anatomical but also performance data. Mm-hmm. Did your own running play a role in your interest in human locomotion? Um, probably, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think it helps to be a runner to appreciate running. And I think, um, 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 it certainly helped inform my, my views and helped me develop hypotheses and, um, um, and, um, and evaluate them. Um, I was never a, a, an elite runner. I never, still am not. I'm a very average runner. Um, and um, but what was fun about writing that paper was that uh, it became a kind of a feedback loop. So as uh, as we were working, uh, we spent about three years writing that paper actually. Um, and we kept asking ourselves, you know, are we crazy? Because nobody else had written this before, with ex- one exception of one paper in 1984, which was really just about thermal regulation. But we put together all the evidence, and we kept wondering if we were just nuts because why have as nobody else <clears throat> written about something that we thought was so obvious that we have all these adaptations for endurance running so but in the course of writing that paper um you know you can't help but think about for example you know i was writing about you know stride length and jumping and achilles tendons and and you know semicircular canals in the ears you know you can't help but think about those aspects of your own anatomy when you're going for a jog and then those um, um kind of helped me think be more excited about what we were writing and so there was kind of a feedback loop between my research and my running and i would say actually before we were i wrote that paper i yeah it was you know it's a kind of typical professor i would go for like three four mile runs um by the end of the time uh, i wrote that paper i was doing half marathons so um i think that's the evidence mm-hmm. so once you accept this idea that we have evolved to run um it kind of leads you down the path to thinking maybe we don't need some of these big cushy shoes that we've been led to believe um was wor- working with the kenyans and thinking more about uh, minimalist footwear uh, is that something that you did your you've incorporated into your running, or was is that just a curiosity? Oh my gosh, no. Well, so uh, of course I incorporated it into my running. So um, when um, so it's actually kind of a fun story. So um, in 2004, when we published that paper, you know, it was very new, and uh, got, we got a lot of attention for it. And I gave a big public lecture um, right before the Boston Marathon, actually, and it was a big, packed audience, and it was a very uh, rainy member, and there was a guy sitting in the front row. Uh, so this would have been uh, April 2005, um, before um, before anything had happened really uh, in this movement. And um, there was a guy sitting in the front row, and I gave this, and he was he was very noticeable because he had a big, huge, bushy beard, and he had suspenders, but most distinctively, he had um, he didn't have shoes. He had socks that were wrapped in duct tape. 
and he looked like a bit like a like a you know a kind of a crazy homeless person from Harvard Square. And you know, uh, Harvard Square is a has lots of interesting characters, and I thought he was just one of those characters, and maybe he was trying to get out of the rain. So, um, but he was very listening, very intently to the talk. And afterwards, he came up to me and asked about barefoot running, um, pointing out that he uh, himself hated wearing shoes and um, and loved to run barefoot and. It was like I had thought about it. We talked a little bit about it, but I'd never really spent much effort uh, studying barefoot running. Um, so I asked for his email address. It turns out he's a Harvard grad from from um, from the 70s, and he owns a bicycle shop here in, in Boston. And so uh, I asked him if he'd come to the lab. And a few days later, he showed up, and we ran him across uh, force plates and filmed him and whatever. And he ran in this beautiful, light, uh, gentle style because, you know, most Americans who wear shoes, heel strike. They land with a hard thump. And at that point, we were doing a lot of work on head stabilization. And, and every once in a while, we got a four-foot striker. And I would get really irritated because four-foot strikers would ruin the experiment because that when you land on your heel, you send the shockwave up your head. It jiggles your head. And we were really excited about what mechanisms you're in, in our bodies help stabilize the head. And so I really hated four-foot strikers because they screwed up our experiment <laughs> they didn't have that 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 that, uh, that amazing shock wave that traveled up their body and so i i you know and we had known since i think 1970s when force plates were first invented that for, that forefoot strikes didn't cause impact peaks but it suddenly hit me that of course that made sense if you're not wearing a cushioned shoe it makes sense not to heel strike and um so I started getting in more barefoot runners uh, to the lab because he knew some others, and then we got online. And uh, there was, you know, the bare, there was, at that point there were very few barefoot runners out there, and they were all called each other barefoot this and barefoot that. It was honorific. So there's barefoot Ken Bob and barefoot, barefoot Rick and barefoot Jeffrey. Jeffrey was our first um, uh, subject. Barefoot Preston. There was all these barefoot guys, and they all called each other barefoot this and barefoot that. They started calling me barefoot Dan. And uh, um, and of course you can't study that without trying it. And then of course I was working in Africa. I've been working in Africa for years, since 1986. And uh, so just a few months later, I went off, did some field work, and saw all these people running barefoot and collected a little bit of preliminary data on them. This is before I'd met McDougal, but it was before McDougal even knew about, ever heard the word Tarahumara, right? Okay. And so we were studying all these guys, and um, and I remember I came back from Africa, uh, this was in the summer of 2005, with my head swimming with these ideas and um, and, a, and, a, and some data, and I remember just taking off my shoes at, on, a, on a run. It was a beautiful summer morning, and I had jet lag and I woke up really early and and um, went for a run and I just sort of took off my shoes sort of about a mile from home without really planning to it just kind of happened and of course I knew the I knew the data, I knew the theory, I'd seen people run that way, but it was the first time I really just tried it. And of course, instantly I realized that it was fun. And so I've sort of been incorporating it more in my running ever since then. Uh, okay. and, then uh, and then McDougall came to the lab, I think, I think the next fall, you know, a few months later. And, um, and of course, I was just talking barefoot all the time. And I remember he was going to go down to uh, Mexico to do, a, my rec memory serves me correct, he was going to, he was doing a, a piece, he came to my lab to do a piece for like Men's Health or Esquire, I can't remember what it was. Because he was doing a lot of journal articles, and he and I remember he told me that he was going to go down to Mexico to do an article for Esquire. That's right about some Mexican porn star. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, this is again. But we were talking about barefoot running, and he came and observed some experiment and whatever, and and um, and I think uh, we sort of infected him a bit, I guess, because mm -hmm. when he went down to Mexico, that's when he ran into the Taramara and wrote wrote the book and popularized our work and all that. At least that's my memory of it. Okay, um, I, I'd like to go into a little bit about this idea of how we, we evolved to run. And I'm wondering from just a layman's perspective, is it possible that evolutionary adaptations can occur that have no benefit? Like, could, uh, could our sweat glands have improved so much without the need to be distance runners? Could that just have happened by chance? It could. 
but but there's a remember everything is a trade-off so one of the reasons so there are features in your body that are not adaptations not everything's an adaptation mm -hmm. so your chin for example um, may have no adaptive function it, um, we don't know it's a hypothesis um, but um, but for many of the features that we're talking about, there are trade-offs. So that makes them less likely to be non-adaptive. So um, sweating, for example, requires us to lose our fur. And fur is a really useful thing. That's why most animals have them. So if you were to get uh, in a scrap with a saber-toothed tiger uh, when you left your house tonight, um, you would probably wish that you had some fur, as, which is a kind of d defense. It's kind of armor against, um, against bites. Fur is also very useful. It's kind of hat, right? It protects you against solar radiation. And there's a reason most animals have fur. So we had to lose our fur in order to sweat. Um, another reason uh, sweating, another cost of sweating is, is um, dehydration. I mean, you can lose a liter an hour easily when you're running on a hot day. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very uh, costly way of cooling. Um, and um, um, and that means that humans, from the when we became sweaters, we became tied to water in a much greater way than, than apes. Or chimpanzees, for example, don't need to drink water. They get it from the foods that they eat. But we, of course, can't live far from water. And that, of course, increases danger. <clears throat> um, Achilles tendon, for example, is um, it acts as a spring in your in your in your leg for running. It's irrelevant to walking, um, mm -hmm. but it decreases the uh, the range of motion over which you can produce force in your ankle. So it makes you uh, less good as a climber. So most of the features, the adaptations that we've identified for running, um, really do look like adaptations in the sense that they um, improve performance for running. They have no relevance for walking, and they have other costs. So the, the benefits must have outweighed the costs, and we can't think of any other. We can't, and some of them we can show that the only benefit could have been running. So I can go on for every single mm -hmm. feature um, okay. we've identified for adaptations. There's always a cost, like like short toes, for example, which are very important for running, help you keep you from breaking your toes. They have a major cost for having short toes, which is that we suck at climbing trees. And and if you ever, you know, you living in Africa two million years ago, um, believe me, you me, you know, being able to climb a tree to get away from a predator would have been a very important uh, adaptation. So all of these features um, have costs, and a lot of them um, uh, cost us in terms of the ability to climb trees. We're the only primate that can't climb trees, and I believe that's not because of adaptations for walking. I believe that's because of adaptations for running. So running is what made us lose the ability to be good at climbing trees, in my opinion. Okay, okay. And that's you a know, big cost. What do you make of some of the assertions by um, people in this evolutionary uh, paleo community that say, people like Art Devaney who assert that we actually are more suited for high intensity type exercise. Do you see that as kind of a bogus claim? Yeah, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> I mean, look, human beings are clearly adapted for endurance and not power. We uh -huh. have your typical human being is mostly slow twitch muscle fibers, not fast twitch muscle fibers. If you were to meet a chimpanzee or any other ape, it could rip your arm off, right? Uh -huh. Arp Devaney and a, well, he would a mud wrestle or arm wrestle a chimp. I, I guarantee you the chimp would not only win, the chimp could, could rip his arm off, right? Yeah. We are clearly adapted for endurance and not for power. We have you cannot be good at both. There are a few human beings who are fairly good at sprinting, but only by human standards, not by mammalian standards. <clears throat> but that said, um, we're not adapted only for endurance. We're also adapted for other things. If you look at what hunter gatherers do for a living, they walk long distances. That's probably the major thing they do. They occasionally have to run long distances. They have to dig. They have to climb. They have to throw things. But for most of human existence, the most important activities that people engaged in were endurance based. 
not power-based. <clears throat> so the evidence, the physiological, comparative, and anatomical and evolutionary evidence is that human beings are more adapted for endurance than for power. And in fact, we gave up power a long time ago. Mm. That's, that said, that doesn't mean power is irrelevant, <clears throat> um, but, and, or that we're adapted only for running or only for walking. That's not true. But to say that endurance is not important for health is just, it's just silly. Okay. Have you seen, you know, some, one thing I've seen in the news lately that I've been a, a, slightly concerned about, but I'm not really sure what to make of it is that long distance exercise might be harmful to the heart. Have you seen any of that lately? Oh yeah. Well, you know, every, every year or, you know, every once in a while, somebody, a runner dies and there's always scare stories about, 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 about the heart. So you should know a few basic facts. I'm not a cardiologist, but, um, I, I do know some, I, you know, I do read the literature and I'm interested in, 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 and I, you know, for example, there's a colleague here at Harvard named Aaron Bagish, who you might want to discuss this with, because he studies the heart, uh, the adaptations in the heart for uh, in in aerobic uh, in, in 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 athletes particularly those who do power aerobic sports so for example when um, Caballo Blanco died there, there were arguments that he, you know there is another bit of evidence that he had a you know cardiomyopathy cardiomyopathy that was brought on by endurance running actually if you look at his death certificate he had a perfectly normal heart and often when people say that runners hearts um, are are pathological you know whose hearts they're comparing them to mm. sedentary inert inactive Americans. They're not comparing them to active people. Okay. Uh, and, you know, yes, when you do exercise, you do get increased thickening of the walls, particularly the ventricles of the heart. But there's no evidence that that's, that's, a, my, that's a myopathy, that that's, a, that's, a, that's pathological. Um, and furthermore, if you look, you look at the data, um, the chances of dying from a heart attack from endurance running are about that of getting hit by um, a lightning bolt, by, by lightning. It's, it's vastly uh, exaggerated. That said, being a runner does not make you immune to heart disease. Mm -hmm. There are runners who do get heart disease. Um, and, um, and there are people who have um, heart problems um, who, um, who, when they start running, oh, sorry about that. Just oh, that's okay. That off. Um, there are people who start running um, who don't know about their underlying heart conditions and they can they can run into trouble. So um, the most famous example would be uh, Jim Fix, who um, who was a smoker for years, um, started running kind of late in life, died of a heart attack. Well, you know, he had the kind of background that probably predisposed him towards that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the evidence is that there's no question that that long distance you know, endurance exercise uh, strengthens your heart, strengthens your cardiovascular system. The benefits clearly outweigh the cost. Are there risks? Yes, there are risks. But are those risks uh, um, um, greater than the risk of not exercising? Well, I'm not, again, I'm not a cardiologist, but I, I would be very, very, very skeptical of that opinion. Yeah. You know, something that I started to think about as I started taking this running man hypothesis more seriously is this and idea. Women. It's not just men. Sorry. Oh, sorry yes. <laughs> yeah. Running man and woman hypothesis um, is that we have, we evolved as carnivores. How has this idea affected the way you look at diet and, and nutrition? Oh, no. Not too much, to be honest, because um, 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 I mean, yes. Well, let me go back to the point about carnivores. You mm -hmm. cannot. How can you be a carnivore and not a runner? And in fact, how do you explain how humans became so good at running, other than through carnivory? Mm -hmm. You know, is it warfare? Obviously not. Is it running after lovers? Unlikely. That would be more sprinting than long distance running. You know, there, we can come. Up, I've, I've been thinking about this for 20, 30 years, and I cannot come up with any hypothesis 
other than running, uh, other than carnivory as being important. And we know that humans started hunting um, at least 2 million years ago, we were, and we became carnivores maybe 2.6 million years ago. And how possibly could you have done that without being good at running? And in mm -hmm. fact, being good at endurance running may have given us a special edge. It may have enabled us to enter the carnivore guild in a way that other carnivores couldn't by, by being good at endurance. So that said, um, um, so obviously we're not only adapted for running, but we're also adapted for eating meat. Meat is a very important part of human diet and has been for two, two and a half million years. Um, so I've never, um, um, my, my opinions haven't, about that haven't changed in okay. since the entire time I've been alive, probably. Ha have you taken any flag from any of the vegetarian runners that about this idea? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being, I mean, occasionally there are people who, who are upset at the idea that humans um, evolved to run for purposes of hunting and carnivory. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, the important thing about vegetarianism is that, um, um, you know, it was only possible to become a vegetarian after the origins of our agriculture. You know, you could not be a vegetarian hunter-gatherer. In fact, I'm sure that such a thing never existed. Um, and um, and in fact, probably early farmers probably could not have been vegetarians. They, were that, they probably didn't have access to the to the to the dairy and the protein sources that were necessary to become a vegetarian. So, um, vegetarianism is a um, is a recent uh, phenomenon in in, uh, in human existence. I've seen more and more people starting to pick up the Vibram Five Fingers and trying to adapt to a more barefoot style of running. And do you think that we'll ever see elites wearing five fingers? Do you think that those have any potential? particular advantage of having the separated toes or anything like that? Well, elites have always been wearing minimal shoes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, a definition of a minimal shoe is that it has no cushioning under the heel. It has no orthotic inside. It has no toe spring and it has no, no real serious cushioning. And, um, you know, racing flats have always been minimal shoes. And so, um, um, elites haven't really needed to change their shoes because they've basically remained more or less unchanged for ever since the modern, you know, ever since Dunlop invented rubber soles for shoes. I mean, you know, there have been little adjustments here and there, but, um, you know, what people are wearing today to race the New York Marathon versus what they wore 20 years ago is not amazingly different. What's really changed is the shoes that your average jogger wears. Mm -hmm. okay. um, as far as the separation of the toes, does that give you any advantage? I suspect not. Um, um, I, I think that, um, um, and in fact, um, one could argue that a slight bit of a shoe is probably an advantage to being completely barefoot uh, for a number of reasons. One is that it makes you, uh, you don't have to worry about where you place your feet uh, when you land. Um, so you can run um, as you wish rather than having to deal as much with variations in the ground. Mm -hmm. And the second reason is that um, a little bit of a shoe, a little stiffness in the sole um, decreases the amount of work that your feet have, foot muscles have to do, um, which will probably give you a slight advantage in terms of uh, performance. So, you know, elite runners will probably always do slightly better, not amazingly better in, in shoes, in minimal shoes. And really what kind of minimal shoe you want to wear if you're an elite is more of a function of your, as long as it's light and, and protects your foot, um, it's probably more of a function of, um, of, um, of what you're comfortable with than probably anything else. Okay. But remember, I would say that we spend way too much time worrying about elite runners. Um, um, you know, human evolution did not uh, adapt us to run a, a marathon, you know, one minute faster than the other guy. Um, um, it, you only had to basically run faster than a, an animal could gallop. And that's all we that's all natural selection cared about. So. I think that people spend way too much time worrying about what elite runners do. They're irrelevant to most of us, and natural selection really didn't care about them. Okay. What shoes are you currently wearing, and, and uh, do, you, do you use the Vibrams still? Uh, my favorite shoes are, are uh, a pair of Horaches, actually. Uh, okay. So I've been wearing those for, uh, for a while now, and um, I, I, there's nothing quite... Um, 
I, I, they're my favorite shoes by far, especially in the summer because um, um, uh, they don't get stinky. Because um, yeah. when you sweat, the sweat just evaporates. And you know, all I want is a little something to protect my feet against rocks and stuff like that. And so, or when the pavement gets really hot um, in the middle of the summer. So if, to me, a, a huarache is a perfect minimal shoe. I've um, I've not been wearing the five. I've worn the five fingers for years. I ran quite a few marathons in them. But I've um, when I once I stopped wearing them, when I started wearing the huarachis, I found that I lost the calluses in between my toes. And putting them back on again means I have to redevelop those little calluses in between there. And I don't really want to do that. So I've not been wearing them for a while. But I've got nothing against them. Uh, oh. I enjoyed wearing them for years. So um, and also in the when the only time I don't wear my huarachis in Boston is when it's really cold. And then I want socks. And as I get older, socks become more important to an old man's feet and um and i like a nice really warm sock and you can't wear a really warm sock with the five fingers so um so i've been wearing um you know i have a bunch of different minimal shoes and i you know i wear different ones depending upon my mood but uh, to me minimal shoes are all basically the same so it doesn't really okay. matter okay so what do you have upcoming what, what have you been working on lately can you share with us? Um, well, we've got a bunch of things in the hopper. Well, one is I've got a book coming out in October called oh. Story of the Human Body, which is actually a, a meant to be a popular book um, about how and why our bodies are the way they are and how that is relevant to health and disease. Um, Interesting. But um, we're doing a lot of work in my lab on all kinds of stuff. We've got a paper that's coming out in Nature very soon on um, the evolution of throwing and how we evolved to be uh, throwers. We're the only species that can throw fast and, uh, um, and with accuracy at the same time. And so we've got a really some really neat biomechanical analyses of how, what makes us able to do that and what's the fossil evidence for when that happened. Um, and then we're doing a lot of work on running. Um, so I've got a lot of data on, um, on natural running form. I've been actually traveling around the world and collecting data on people from pretty much all over the world, who uh, tribal runners in India and Taramara and people in Africa, etc. And got some really cool data on natural running form. And we're doing a lot of work on injury now in the lab too, looking at the effects of lean and stride rate and all kinds of other uh, variables that are, are of import to runners. So we have a, there's a lot in the hopper. Great, great. Really look forward to reading that book. Well, Professor Lieberman, it's been great speaking with you today and thanks so much for taking the time to be part of the show. And I know the listeners will really, find, I've found it very enjoyable and interesting and I, I'm sure they will as well. well I'm glad that on the, because I checked out your blog, okay. a paleo runner, for the first time you've got somebody talking about paleo running. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it'll be perfect. Thanks so All much. Right. My pleasure. Happy running. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.